At my last um, church in South Carolina, one of the uh, men, uh, Rooney Floyd, came up to me. He's one of the engineers. I guess all the men were basically engineers and many of the women at my last church. And uh, he said that he was had a decision to make one day and he was thinking, what should I do? And all of a sudden, this catechism that he had learned when he was like three or four years old and now he was in his 60s popped into his head and it, it suddenly gave him the wisdom to make this decision. And so I, uh, I think about that as these children are learning these catechisms. It's not just something that they're learning for a, a little while, but it's shaping and forming their outlook on life according to um, the theology of the Scriptures. And so it's a, uh, a real blessing to see the children uh, give themselves um, to the, the catechism memory and uh, have them come up and, and uh, faithfully uh, recite them. Let's pray together. Father, I thank You for these children. I thank You also for the families that are working with these children to teach them the catechism. And Father, I pray that they would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and would not know a day apart from Him that they could ever remember. Father, we uh, thank You for Your Word. As I proclaim it and as Your people hear it, Father, I pray that You would apply it uh, by Your Spirit. And Father, if there are any here who do not know the Lord Jesus, I pray also that they would uh, that You would apply it to them and that they would um, leave this service as a new creation in Christ. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Three weeks ago, I told you about the uh, one of the Apostle Paul's tools to carry forward his arguments in his letters. And uh, here in Romans and in other letters, but particularly in Romans, he employs an imaginary antagonist who will raise questions and then he'll set forth then to answer those questions that this imaginary antagonist has raised. And so when you're aware of this, uh, it can really help open up uh, some of the, the less clear uh, portions of Paul's writings. Well, this morning I want to teach you another technique that Paul uses frequently to push forward the momentum of his letters. He uses a single word. In the Greek, it's not a very impressive word. It's only three letters. Omicron, Upsilon, Noon. It's the word un. Uh, even just one syllable. And it's commonly translated in English as therefore. So when you see the word therefore in Paul's writings, you should ask, what's that therefore, therefore? And it will be it will help open up Paul's uh, writings. When Paul uses the word therefore, it typically means that he's just made a major point and now he's going to draw out the implications of the point that he's just made. In other words, he's going to make at least one or likely um, much more than one or several applications based on the major point that he's been driving at. Now people tell me from time to time, I don't really care 
to know what it means. What I want to know is what the Bible means to me. In other words, what they're saying, and I can appreciate this, that they want the applications. They want the Bible to be applied to them. So if you're one of these people that just love the applications, what it means for me, then you should especially get excited every time you see the word therefore in Paul's writings because he's typically about to get very practical. This is certainly the case in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And uh, we've been moving through Romans fairly rapidly because I want you to get the overall, the big picture. I haven't really gotten down into the weeds as much because I want you to see the overall picture because what Paul is doing here in the book of Romans is laying out the Christian faith. And so, I want you to understand the Christian faith as the Apostle Paul is laying it out. Paul's been arguing that the whole world is woefully unrighteous. That we all fall infinitely short of God's glory because all of us have sinned against God. And we've sinned by preferring the three-headed idolatry of me, myself, and I over the true and the living God. But instead of casting us off forever for choosing ourselves rather than choosing God, God has been merciful. He has given us His own righteousness. And He's given us His own righteousness in exchange for our sins. It's almost like He says, give me your sins and I will give you my righteousness. The Lord Jesus Christ took our sins upon Himself on the cross and He wore our sins as a as a curse. And in exchange, or in return, Jesus has given us His perfect righteousness to wear as a robe of honor. This exchange of our sins for God's righteousness is only ours in Christ and it is only by faith alone. This exchange is absolutely necessary for salvation. If you've never had this exchange where you've given God your sins and received from Him by faith alone His righteousness, then you've never been saved. This exchange is absolutely necessary for salvation, for our salvation. Now, chapter 4, we saw in last week's sermon that Paul appealed to Abraham. He also appealed to King David to validate his argument that justification is only by faith alone. And for the past week and a half, I've been marveling over the fact that Paul specifically appealed to David's prayer in Psalm 32 as proof for justification by faith. Paul does not appeal to David's faith in God as David killed Goliath. Paul doesn't appeal to David's faith in God as he was merciful to King Saul. Paul doesn't um, refer to David's great faith as he conquered his enemies. Rather, Paul refers to David in his um, in his sin of um, when Nathan the prophet confronted David and outed him 
as an adulterer, as a liar, and as a premeditated murderer. Paul uh, quotes David in Psalm 32 where this is David's um, confession of sin and his prayer for mercy where God grants him mercy. Not because of anything David had done. Not for anything David could do. Not for any of David's prior faithfulness. But it was simply His mercy alone. There was no way for David Uh, There was no way out for David. He deserved to die. All he could do was cast himself on the mercy of God and trust that God would save him. And thankfully, God had planned to send a Messiah to die for David's sins so that God could, could overlook completely David's sins, as great as they were, knowing that they would be fully paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ. David is an example for us. The reason I'm going back and mentioning David is because uh, I want us to see um, from, uh, from, God, from, from Paul's standpoint um, how God forgave David so that we can better understand how God forgave us and from what He forgave us. In order for us to be saved, the only thing, the only thing we could ever do is cast ourselves upon the mercy of God that is offered us in the atoning blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ our Lord. David was already a believer when he committed this uh, unthinkable string of sins. Uh, But in his defense, He did not rely, as I've already said, on his past faithfulness. He didn't rely on his heritage as a Jew. He did not even rely on his position as the king of Israel. The only thing he relied on was the mercy of God. And as Romans 4, verses 7 and 8 says, he considered himself blessed that God forgives our lawless deeds that God covers our transgressions and will not count our sins against us. All because Jesus Christ, the Messiah, has paid for our sins in our place. The point is, God forgives sinners. God has not only forgiven David, He's also forgiven us of our ungodly acts. He's forgiven us uh, in Jesus Christ completely. I want you to look at verse 6. Before we get to verses 1 through 4, I want you to see um, verses 6 through 11. The Apostle Paul says, Let no one deceive you. I'm sorry. It would help if I were not in Ephesians, but in Romans. Uh, Paul says in verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. You see that? You see for whom Christ died? Christ did not die for the church-going people. Christ did not even die for the children of the church-going people. Christ died for the ungodly. Look at verses 7 and 8. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God does not wait for us to get ourselves all put together before He gives us His pledge of love. He doesn't wait to see if we're going to be faithful before He's going to commit Himself to to love us. When Paul says, while we were still sinners, he's talking about the time while we still hated God and wished that He were dead so that we could live our lives the way we want to. God loved us so much, even while we were rebels, that He sent His own Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. Does that sound too good to be true? Can can I make it any clearer than He loved you while you were His enemy? Actually, yes, I can. Look at verse 10. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. You see that? We were not just ungodly. We were not just sinners. But we were God's enemies. And even though we were God's enemies, He loved us and sent His Son to die for our sins. Paul is right when he says, truly one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone would even dare to die. But God shows us His own love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, God loved you so much that even when you hated Him, He continued to love you and sent His Son to die for us. And you better believe that He's going to keep on loving you in spite of your current or your ongoing sinfulness even now. He's not going to withdraw His love. You know, since I've been talking to you about uh, Paul's common literary tactics or techniques, um, he uses another common technique in verse uh, here in verse 10. He, Paul loves to use the, I don't even know if I can pronounce it, Jim Eggert could probably help me, the a fortiori argument. Yes. Uh, and it's, it's the argument basically that uh, where the person making the argument draws upon the existence of, um, of his confidence in the prior proposition for, his, for the uh, truthfulness of the second statement that's usually weaker. In other words, um, it, it, the, the, this, this a fortiori argument, um, the first statement's usually stronger and it's been proven to be true, so the second statement, the lesser statement, has to be just as true. So what Paul has done is he's been establishing that God loves you so much, even while you were sinners, even while you were enemies, that He is going to continue loving you 
after He draws you to Himself. He's not going to withdraw His love. That's what He's saying here in verse 10. For if while we were enemies, there's the stronger statement, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. If God's going to love you while you're His enemy, you better believe He's going to bring you into eternal life, bring you into fellowship with Himself. That's the easy thing. The hard thing was God loving you, even while you were enemies. But He did. And He sent His Son to die for you. He uses the same kind of argument in verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. If He's going to give His Son to bleed and die for you, turning His wrath away from you is not, a, is not a great thing. It's an easy thing. Because He poured His wrath on, your, on, on His Son. You can take it to the bank that He will keep you for Himself through all eternity. Now in the first two paragraphs of this sermon, I told you that Paul was about to get real practical. But I've only been real theological to this point. So uh, I'm on page 7 of my uh, 10-page sermon. So I guess I need to start getting practical. Um, Because I haven't given you the practical stuff that Paul's drawing from the doctrine of justification. Well, the practical stuff is in verses 1 through 5. Now, to be fair, I've tried to paint the background for the practical so that when we get to these practical implications, you'll be able to see it very clearly. The first practical implication is found in verse 1. Paul says that because we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. Now, that's what I call a practical implication of justification by faith. Jesus took our sins. Jesus took our wrath. Jesus even took our rebellious, God's hating sin nature and crucified it with Him on the cross. We'll see that when we get to Romans chapter 6. In other words, everything that could ever stand between you and God, Jesus has taken care of it. The only thing that stands between you and God now is peace. Our ongoing ability to sin and hate God no longer stands between us. Even our sins that we continue to commit no longer stand between us. Our existence as finite creatures no longer stands between us. Although we're not able to see God and experience God here on earth like we will when we get to heaven, God loves us as much now. God loves you as much at this moment as He will when you get to heaven. From God's side, His relationship to us could not be any stronger. Regardless of how you feel about yourself, or how you feel about your relationship to God, if you are in Jesus Christ, His relationship with you is perfectly good. 
You just need to believe the biblical facts. In other words, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Nothing can hinder your access to God. Not even anything you have done in your past, nor anything you could do in your presence. No words, no actions, no thoughts, nothing is able to hinder you from your relationship and your access to God. In fact, this is the second implication we see here in um, in verse 2. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Because of Christ's justifying work for us, we have access by faith into the full deposit of God's grace. You have access, complete, unhindered access to the God of the universe. You are His child. You get to call the God of the universe your Father. You can crawl up into His lap, so to speak, in prayer and tell Him about your sins and about your fears and about your concerns. And you can know that He will hear you You can know that He won't be so embarrassed that He would turn His back away. You can know that He will continue to love you better than any earthly father would be able to do. Now that's an implication of justification by faith. Peace with God, access with God, and Paul's not finished. He's piling up the implications of justification by faith, one on top of another. Look at the last half of verse 2 where he says, Um, And we, in my translation, rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's a poor translation. It's not the word rejoice, but it's rather the word boast. So what Paul's saying is that we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Paul purposely uses this word boast. Uh, And the reason he uses this word boast is because he's told us in chapter 3 that boasting is excluded because of justification by faith and, and not by works. But now in chapter 5, he says that we are to boast in the hope of the glory of God. What does he mean? We're not supposed to boast, chapter 3, verse 27, but now we're, we boast in the, the hope of the glory of God? What? Is Paul contradicting himself? No, he expressly uses the word boast. He doesn't use the word for rejoice that we find in Philippians or we find in uh, James chapter 1, verse 2. He uses the word boast. I don't know why the translation um, gave us um, rejoice here. But uh, he uses the word boast. And what he wants us to see is that we are encouraged or rather, we are excluded from boasting in ourselves. We can only boast in what God does. And so he says we're to boast in the hope of the glory of God. God has given us an assured hope. Hope in the Bible is a certain hope. It's not just a wish. It is a certain hope. It is a assured hope. So God has given us an assured hope that we will stand in the presence of and experience the full magnitude of God's glory. Nothing, no one, not even our sins 
will keep us out of God's presence. Is what Paul's saying. We will experience the glory of God because we will be in His presence one day. So we boast now that we will experience the glory of God. Nothing can keep us from it because nothing is able to keep us from God. And that, again, is an implication of justification by faith. And He's not finished yet. Not only that, he says, he's cluing us in that uh, there are other implications that are just as wonderful. Not only that, verse 3, but we rejoice, and again, it's the word boast. We boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope. Again, we boast because there is nothing that uh, we cannot boast because God's the one who's doing it. Um, We boast in our sufferings not because we are able to stand steadfast in our own strength in our sufferings. Rather, we boast in what God's doing. Um, We boast in the fact that we can endure our sufferings because we are solidly in God's grip. No matter what suffering you are going through, no matter what suffering you have gone through previously, you are in God's hands. Your suffering is in His hands. He is a sovereign God. There's nothing outside His control. And we can boast even in our sufferings. God sends suffering. Paul acknowledges that. And we boast in the suffering itself because as people who are justified, we can know that everything God sends is a blessing for us. Everything. There is no punishment for the Christian. Jesus Christ has taken all our punishment. Or as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. God sends suffering. God sends difficult circumstances. You can boast in God because you know that even these difficulties will result in your good. You say, well, how does that work? Well, He gives us the answer in verse, uh, the end of verse 3 and verse 4. Because our suffering produces endurance. Here we are, we're suffering, we're keeping our eyes on God, and what it does is it ratchets in our faith on God and our grip on Him becomes tighter. It's so we endure as we boast in our sufferings, as really we boast in God, who is the, the author um, of, of our sufferings. And so we endure, and as we endure, our endurance begins to turn into a changed character. It begins to transform us. And then, well, as we are changed, what happens? Well, and as we endure, we begin to see God's faithfulness um, as He brought us through the suffering and our hope begins to increase. We have a sure and certain hope, but God says, I want to keep filling it up beyond the brim so that it's overflowing into other people's lives. So that's the the pattern here. There are other patterns that we could see along the same lines. 
Suffering produces endurance under suffering. I'm sorry, suffering, faithful suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And then character produces hope. And hope will never disappoint us, God, uh, Paul says, because um, it will never put us to shame. God's, because God has, uh, in His love has poured out His Holy Spirit into our hearts. So, what are some of the practical implications of some of these practical implications? Well, I'm just going to give one. And that is, as you are justified by faith, you can know that nothing under all creation is able to separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You are in His hands. You have full access. You, you, you have peace with Him. You have full access to Him. Um, the, uh, you will be in His presence in heaven guaranteed. And so you can boast even in your sufferings. So the one application I want to ask you, if all that is true, how do you do when suffering comes in your life? And I'm asking really, how well do you uh, apply this passage to your life? How well do you live it out? And so the question is, how well do you do, or what do you do when suffering comes into your life? Are you able to rejoice? Or, as the biblical language puts it, are you able to boast in your suffering? And if not, you haven't fully understood the justification by faith and the, uh, the implications of it. And I would urge you, go to God because He loves to forgive. He loves to transform. That's what this passage is all about. God has His arms wide open to the ungodly. And He says to the ungodly, Come to Me. Blessed are you when your sins are forgiven, when your transgressions are covered, when God no longer counts your sins against you. Let's pray together. Father, as we are looking at this doctrine of justification, as we are seeing how the Apostle Paul draws out the implications, Lord, I pray that You would help us to live in the implications of justification by faith. Lord, help us to apply this doctrine to our life that the implications may flow through us, that we might be able to boast in the hope of the glory of God and even boast in our sufferings. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.